the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Encouraging Cropping podcast. My name is Ashley and I'm joined today by Joanne Ferguson from Nature Scott, who also works in UIST. Hello Joanne. Hi there. So Joanne, we are here to talk about the maca today. Would you start by describing what the maca is to our listeners? Yes indeed. Well, maca is this species-rich coastal grassland and it grows on top of lime-rich shell sand and it's restricted to the northwest coast of Scotland and Ireland. It's a semi-natural habitat and it's been formed by thousands of years of seasonal grazing and rotational cultivation carried out by the crofters and their ancestors. So this sort of traditional management is what's formed the abundance and diversity of wildlife that we see today around us. Nature Scott are the lead public body responsible for advising Scottish ministers on nature designations. What have the makas been designated for? So some of the makas are designated, in fact most are. So the ones that are designated are covered by European designations. First of all we've got special areas of conservation and that covers all the makar habitats and some of the species such as otters. The, the makars are also designated as a special protection area for birds. So breeding birds such as corn crakes, which are reliant on hayfields and corn crops. Also birds like little tern and wading birds such as dunlin, redshank, oyster catcher and ring plover. Now they all nest on the cropped areas of, of the makar grassland and the waders, they nest in really high densities and their territorial calls are a really characteristic feature of a US spring. So it really is quite a spectacular experience. Now the SPA, it also includes wintering waders and they mostly feed along the strand line on the seaweed. And in some areas, we also have wintering barnacle geese that uh, feed on the macher. In a previous podcast, it has been discussed how with agricultural specialisation, much arable has remained in the east of Scotland, but has been lost from many parts of the west coast. However, the west coast of Uist and the Macca seems to be an exception to this. Can you tell us about the traditional cropping practices that occur over here? Yes, so the, the arable crops in Uist, they're referred to as corn crops, but they're actually oats, rye or barley. And uh, the seed strains they're used in Uist, they've been used for a very long time and they've developed distinctive characteristics that make them much more suited to the conditions here. You know, so they can cope with uh, the sandy soils and the sort of windy conditions. So occasionally crofters can't get the sort of native Uist seed and they have to use sort of mainland varieties instead and, and that needs more fertiliser to grow here and that in turn reduces the wildfire diversity in the sort of crop patches. Now so that the corn crops here they tend to be cultivated on a rotation so it's, it's usually two years cultivated and then left for two years fallow but this can vary from macher to macher. Some machers are, are three years each. Um, so traditionally, ploughing used to be really shallow, and by that I mean about four inches deep. But the change in machinery to much larger tractors, etc. So that means that the, the deeper ploughs are, are more often used now. So we used to be quite concerned about that, and we thought that perhaps the wildflower seeds would be buried far too deep, and, uh, and it would be difficult for them to germinate. But that doesn't seem to be the case, so we're sort of less concerned about that now. So in places like US, seaweed is still very much used as a fertiliser. And this comes from the cast seaweed, which is washed up on the Macher beaches during the winter. 
and the crofters they collect that up in heaps on the macher and then they spread it over the crop patches in the early spring. So the use of seaweed used to be really widespread but it's reducing a bit over the years and quite often now crofters will use sort of inorganic fertilisers instead or maybe in combination with seaweed. So the crop patches we have here, there's a variety of shapes and sizes depending on which macher you're on but they're commonly quite long and thin and this is really important for wildlife so it provides this edge effect where birds in particular they might nest in the crop patches but then the chicks will move into the grassland to feed or to hide. So the, the, that sort of pattern of crop patches it sort of also encourages an abundance of flowering plants which most people call weeds uh, along the edge. Maybe there's places where there's less fertiliser used so it's less competition for them with the crop. And this is a spectacular site but it also provides a really good food source for sort of pollinators and birds. We also have small patches of potatoes which are grown in the macher and they can be particularly diverse with flowers. So it's a combination of all these different crop patches creates this sort of patchwork or mosaic of habitats which again are really really beneficial to wildlife. So as more cropping these days is carried out by contractors rather than by individual crofters it is much easier for people to get all the patches that are cultivated at the same time so that can change the sort of traditional patchwork so it's sometimes been replaced by a sort of large or much more continuous area of cultivation. The other really good thing about Eurist, well, matters in general, are that sort of pesticides and herbicides aren't used, and this is a huge benefit to wildlife, but particularly invertebrates. So lastly, the sort of timing and pattern of harvesting is again very environmentally friendly. The corn crops are sort of traditionally harvested in sort of mid to late September, okay, sometimes into October, and that sort of depends whether the crop has been kept for seed or whether uh, it's been used for sort of fodder and turned into sort of uh, arable silage. Mm. Most of the crops they're in agri-environment schemes so therefore they have to be harvested in a sort of concrete friendly manner and that means sort of cutting from one side to the other or cutting from the middle outwards rather than cutting from the outside in. So that's really important as well. So while you're talking about seaweed, the Farm Advisory Service have created a practical guide on using seaweed as a fertiliser on the maca. Why is the use of seaweed so important for the maca systems? So the, the seaweed, it binds the sand particles together and this reduces sand blow from the crop patches. So this is really useful when it's a dry spring as it stops the seed from blowing away. Uh, it's also really important because it conditions the soil by providing sort of important micronutrients for microbes in the soil and that in turn sort of helps plant growth. Um, seaweed's also a long-acting slow-release fertiliser so that c carries on working throughout the season say compared to inorganic fertilisers that need to be reapplied several times to maybe have the same effect. The downside is that seaweed can be a wee bit late in kicking in so it looks like the crop is growing a wee bit slower when you use seaweed. So the using a lot of inorganic fertiliser it also affects the botanical diversity of the crop patch um, so and it releases you know, relatively large amounts of carbon compared to seaweed um, so it's not so desirable in terms of you know, decarbonizing mm. agricultural operations um, so the seaweed is much better for botanical diversity in the crop patches and it also provides like food for invertebrates and that's really good for birds as well that's good Insect loss is a big concern across the board. Why is the maca so abundant with insects and how many species have been recorded in the used maca? Well, I don't think we actually know the answer to that. <laughs> but the, the Maca Life Project, which was 
operational about 10 years ago, carried out a survey on some just a few crop patches and they recorded at least 222 species. But the actual number of species is likely to be much larger. But the real story is about the abundance of invertebrates on Macha rather than the number of species. Um, and when you're on the Macha in midsummer, the place is just literally buzzing with pollinators such as hoverflies, bees and butterflies. So this includes some of the iconic species we have here such as great yellow bumblebee, northern Kalites mining bee and belted beauty moths. So they're all common in US but they're not doing so well elsewhere. And part of the reason for that is, as I said, because you know, we don't use herbicides and pesticides here, so there's nothing to affect them in terms of chemicals. And the marker is a system that is based on human disturbance with fallow periods, like you mentioned before. What are your thoughts on rewilding in this context? Well, well Macher is a semi-natural habitat, so it actually needs to be managed to deliver that spectacular sort of biodiversity. So I'm not sure rewilding is perhaps the correct term. I mean, you can see if what happens if you stop managing the Macha. When you look at areas that aren't managed, say around the airports, they don't tend to be managed. Mm. And they can become quite rank. And while there's still wildlife there, it's not anywhere near as spectacular as where it's been managed. So you elsewhere. can see the difference there elsewhere. So, yeah. I don't think rewilding would quite fit. Um, on the other hand, rewilding means an awful lot of different things to different people. It does. So sometimes it. it just means making space for wildlife. So I think we've sort of done that already on the marker systems. Yeah, definitely. What positives do you think current policies that are in place have on the marker systems? And if we were living in an ideal world, what would you change about them? So I think the existing sort of agri-environment schemes we have, uh, they're already delivering sort of huge benefits for, for wildlife. So, so I think that's already working. I mean, there are downsides to that. And we do get some feedback about it, you know, not quite fitting local circumstances occasionally. And uh, people think it's um, difficult to get into, or very bureaucratic, uh, or whatever. It doesn't quite fit with their individual circumstances. Um, so I think... There's, there's certainly room for improvement there, but luckily that does seem to be changing. And now we're, there's all this talk about outcome-led agri-environment schemes. And we're, we're working, um, as other people are, on pilot projects across Scotland. And there, there's some in the Outer Hebrides as well, just to see how that might work in practice. So that looks really hopeful. That's quite interesting. And the uptake in use seems to be really high as well in comparison to other areas of Scotland. It's extremely high schemes. so I think it's really important for that for that support to continue if we're to, to keep the, the wildlife interest we have here and oh. to support the crofting community too. So in an ideal world there would be it would be good to to see sort of the use of seaweed encouraged more for instance um, and also options that help to deliver on climate change. So people have plenty of ideas on what they'd like to do about that, but it's quite difficult for them to source funding, so it'd be quite good for that to be able to be accessed through agri-environment as well. And the other thing that would be really good to see addressed is uh, where local communities want to, to do something about tourism pressures, either to provide additional facilities or to just address the, the impacts on croft life from, from some of these pressures. So as the marker works in conjunction with the crofters, what is it that are the biggest threats today to the favourable conditions of the marker? Well, so things like climate change is a big threat. So we've got relative sea level rise happening sort of here, and, and that's probably going to increase erosion. 
and, and this will also change the distribution of habitats over time and erosion doesn't happen at an equal rate along the coast so some crofters will be more affected than others uh, so some crofters lose maybe will lose a huge part of their cropping area and the difficulty with that is that the systems we have at the moment are really inflexible to change mm -hmm. so it's difficult for crofters to adapt so if one crofter loses a lot of it of their crop patch where else are they going to crop are they going to be allowed to crop in a different part of the common grazings are they going to be able to change their boundaries on their applications to eek schemes are they going to be able to change their croft boundaries in the future and it's that sort of flexibility we're going to need as the decades roll on because the habitats will change and these things will need to be looked at sort of more carefully yeah <laughs> uh, climate change will also probably affect well will affect our, our weather patterns so that you wonder whether this might affect the viability of some of the cultivation and cropping practices at the moment. You know, some areas might become too wet to cultivate or too dry. I mean, that sounds like I'm hedging my bets there, but we already <laughs> see that some of the machers are so wet that it's really difficult for them to plough in time before the dates we have at the moment. And, and even if you remove these dates, then um, will they be able to plough in time in order to grow that crop before they have to harvest at the end of the autumn? Will there be enough time for them to do that? And then there's the other people who've got very dry machers. So if there's a very dry spring, will these areas still be viable to grow a crop or will it be too dry for that crop to germinate and actually start to grow? Yeah. So these are the sort of questions that, that we have in our minds and wonder about what might happen in the future. A bit more flexibility needed. Yeah. Oh, and the other big threat, which is not really to do with macher or crofters, it's really to do with non-native species. So we've got hedgehogs and mink and polecat ferrets and cats, and, and they all have an impact on, on breeding birds. And um, that is a, a very big threat to the favourable condition of the macher. Of course, there's always room for improvement in what's happening at the moment with, with some of the management that happens on, on uh, macher systems. So, for instance, things like you'll be able to complete your cultivation activities really quickly from when you start would, would really help the breeding bird success. So, like, you know, some people might, they might plough their patch or the contractor might plough their patch one Saturday and it might be a couple of weeks later before they finally finish the last cultivation activity. And, and where, where that happens, the birds can be, they can have their nests destroyed every single time and every time they relay, they have less chance of success. And then finally, they just give up. So I think what we do is we try and encourage people to complete the cultivation as quickly as possible. That would really help. Give the birds a better chance. It would, it would help give the birds a better chance, yes. Okay. And of course, the other big issue is dumping, if we could encourage people not to dump on the macha. And one of the, one of the really interesting facts I discovered recently was that the carbon that's stored in the lime-rich shell sand on the dunes uh, is far more than loads of other habitats you might expect. So it's more than woodlands, it's even more than blanket bog. So when you add acidic material like peat or whatever to that and mm. it releases that carbon, that has a huge impact. You always find out something new every single year. Where did you find that? It was actually on one of our internet oh. <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> Very good. I'll have to listen to that. It's a marine carbon. So yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, Joanne, and for sharing your knowledge on the use macker. Oh, you're welcome. I love talking about macker. <laughs> Good. 
And if the listeners would like to read the practical guide mentioned in the podcast, please visit the FAS website at www.faz.scot and you will find it under the Croft and Small Farm section.